Let's pray. Father, once again, we, uh, we come before you. We uh, thank you for the privilege of being in your presence and enjoy and having the joy of your presence, Lord. In your presence, there's liberty, there's joy, there's freedom. And now, Lord, in, in, in recognizing and acknowledging your presence, we ask you that you will speak to us through your word. We ask that you will pour out your spirit into our hearts, upon us, and touch every part of our, our being, Lord, that everything that, that is contained, that all the truth that is contained in your word, Lord, will touch us, all of us, Father, as we humble ourselves and sit under the authority of your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all, we're, we're crawling through the, the, the uh, first epistle of Peter. Let's go to First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start from verse 4. First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, and, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, even you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it, is, it, is, it says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." We've been going through this, uh, the, uh, start from the, the uh, chapter 1, on the, and our theme has been building spiritual people or building God's, or building spirit, spiritual people, God's spiritual house. And we talk about what, what it means to be spiritual, and, uh, and we tackled three major, throughout the whole first chapter until now, three major points, and this. And that is the essence of spiritual people. That is the identity. And we, we dealt with that. That uh, being spiritual for us, the essence of you and I as Christians, our spirituality has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. He chose us. He caused us to be born again. And he made us greater than the prophet. He made us greater than the angels. I mean, we, we covered all that. So, our identity, and then we also deal with, we've dealt with uh, the, this idea, knowing our identity is important, but also having the right thinking. All right? That's, and we use the scripture that we, I sort of give it, I've given it over and over. 
girding the loins of our mind because it's very important. There are times because the world is, is living in this environment where everybody is led by how they feel. And how you feel defines who you are. That is a lot of baloney. Sometimes I don't feel like getting up in the morning, but guess what? I have to get up in the morning and get a job, you know. And if you don't feel like you're a guy today, you could be a girl. That's, that's crazy. Just because you feel that way? That's how the world teaches our generation. Yeah, just live by how you feel. And it's right across everything. Tomorrow, I just, I just don't feel like I, I love you, honey. That has nothing to do with that. Could you imagine? Yeah, yeah. She just went like this. <laughs> That's what people do. You know, love is about feeling. No, no, no. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It's about being, being led by the truth. That's what being spiritual is. Because we are not creature of instincts. Right? We are not led by instinct. We are not animals. I watched this movie. This guy, he, he went to, to, to a sort of like a, a guy, his enemy sort of thing. And the guy was very, very intimidating. And, and sitting, sitting next to this, this enemy was this massive dog. And they were having lunch. The, they were having lunch. And then this massive dog started, started growling. And then, and then the, the owner of the dog said, you make one wrong move. And that dog will jump all over you, and that's the end of you. So the guy just came calmly to the table, Grab, grab a piece of steak, throw it into the swimming pool. <laughs> the dog jumped into the swimming pool. He said, you are just as predicted as, an, as, predicted as that dog. Doesn't matter how highly trained, they're just instinct, you know. He grabbed a piece of steak, threw it in the pool. This highly trained dog jumped into the pool. Many of us, we think we are highly trained, but we are led by our instinct. The enemy just comes and grab something that is precious to us instinctively and throw it into, the, into, into hell when we chase after it. Hello? I'm talking about many Christians who can prophesy, who think they can hear God, but they're driven by how they feel. They're driven by, by instinct instead by, by the truth when Everything in you and everything in me just want to do something that you know that's what, not what the Bible says, but you, I just decide, no. What makes the difference between me and, and that dog is I can choose the truth. Even though everything in me, natural instinct, wants to go that way, but the truth I submit to, that is going to save me, not my instinct. Anyway, we dealt with that a few weeks ago. So, our identity, right thinking, and our behavior or, or conduct. In this, Paul said, now you've got the right thinking, now live a holy life. And then he breaks up, not Paul, Peter, and he actually lays it down what, what it means to live a holy life. And he said, in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he said, now that you have purified yourself, and he, and he went on, and then he said, love one another. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? 
And then he described what loving one another is like. No malice, no hypocrisy, you know, all those things. So living a holy life is loving one another. And the second point he said is hunger for the pure spiritual milk. So it's loving one another and having a hunger for God. And the point I was making last week was that there was an echo of Jesus' teaching. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what I said was, Jesus didn't commend or didn't celebrate the righteous, but he celebrated those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that word hunger is not adjective, hungry, it's hunger, verb. It's an active thing, Christians active in their hunger for God. All right? So all those three points will take you to this point. This is pretty much, I could say this is the heart of the, of the epistle. As if Peter is saying, I'm saying all those things. Because of this reason. Because you are being built up into a spiritual, spiritual house as you come to him, the living son, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offer, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want to focus about the significance of the house of God. From that passage, pretty much, I want to just focus. We will talk about it more next week, but I want to focus on this. And that is the, the title of my sermon today, The Significance of God's House. Why how important is it being spiritual? Because according to the passage that, that we read, we can, we, can, we, can, we can understand. The spiritual people coming together to Jesus, being built up, we are the spiritual house. So why, this, why, why, why is it important to be spiritual people? Because it's about the house of God. It is about the house of God. But why the house of God? Why, what is the significance of the house of God? Why is it? The answer is simple. Because God wants to be with his people. <laughs> God wants to be with his people. Right throughout the Bible. This idea of God being with his people is known in one word. Does anybody know? Start with the word the the uh, the letter I, Emmanuel. What? Oh yeah, I'm doing the Indonesian. Yeah, yeah. Emmanuel. Yeah. Actually, no, Emmanuel is a no, 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 nice both. Yeah, I'm not Spanish. I'm not Emmanuel. It's both actually. Yeah. You can Google you can Google if you want to. Okay. 
No, it's Emmanuel. Actually, in 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 the thing, actually, Emmanuel is I also. Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not just something that we see on Christmas or here. It's not just a New Testament truth. Because the name of Jesus is Emmanuel, Matthew chapter one, verse twenty-three. You shall be you shall call him Emmanuel, God with God with us, with which is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. But Emmanuel is, is a concept that, ha- that happened right from the beginning of time. God wants to be with his people. So I'm going to touch on three things. The creation of man, the creation of Israel, and the creation of the church. As we go to the, the uh, creation of man from the beginning, obviously the book is Genesis. Without going through the whole thing of Genesis, I'm just going to talk about it. But as, you, as I read, you know, when you read Genesis, you will, you will detect, you know, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the style or the pattern of the language expressed in the narrative of creation in Genesis 1 is marked by seven imperatives left. Okay, in verse 3, 6, verse 9, verse 11, every time God created something, he said, let the earth be filled with, you know. So in the creation of all the creatures, God began with, with, let the water be filled, let the earth be filled. So God, to fill something, to, to, to create something in the, in the, uh, in the water to create fish, God spoke to, to, to the water. I think I've, I've talked about this before, but I might as well go through that again. So, to make fish, God, cre- God spoke into the environment, let the water, and fish came, and all other creatures. And to the forest, God said, let the earth, and all creatures of the earth. So, God spoke to the environment to create the, the, the content of the environment. But here's the thing. In the creation of mankind, he spoke to himself. He said, let us. So my conclusion is this. The very environment that we're supposed to live in is God himself. So mankind, out of God, away from God, is like fish out of water. That's why the world is going crazy. Because they're living out of the environment they're supposed to be living in. I think it makes sense. If God wants to create somebody or someone who is the, who's supposed to carry his image and supposed to rule the earth, subdue the earth in Genesis 1, obviously the right environment will have to be himself. You know, as a true representation of God, he has to be created in the right environment, which is God himself. I can imagine, I can see the angels would be watching God speaking the word, boom, heaven and earth were created. Like, 
And he spoke, and then the stars were created. And he said, I'm going to make man in my image. Let us. So he, he spoke to himself. Not only that, and then he, I can imagine, you know, from eternity past to that point, the angels never seen anything like it before. And then I could see God came to earth, and it says that from clay, he stooped down to the earth and started to grab a handful of clay and start to fashion something. Can you imagine the angel was thinking, what are you doing? We've never seen this before. What the heck are you doing? And then when that thing came to a completion, I can imagine also the astonishment of the angels. Man, that looks just like God. Because that's what he says. We are created in his image. That looks just like God. What the heck? And then it didn't stop there. And it says, and God breathed into mankind, and it became a living soul. Up to that point, it was just a clay in the form of God. And he breathed into it. I I can't think anything else but, you know, when you breathe into something, there has to be a close contact. Even to the point, I believe, maybe it is mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Wouldn't be far from that. Now, here's the the thing. Just just imagine. The Bible says when he breathed into man, the the man became a living soul. Before that, it was just dead, right? And he breathed, and then life came. He became a living soul. Here's the thing. Just imagine. He opened his eyes with all the beauty of the creation, all the fantastic things, all the birds and everything. The first sight as he opened his eyes was the face of his own creator. That is the environment that we are supposed to live in. We are created. Wow. Not only we are created in the environment of God, but in, with the, in the in, in intimacy with God. Yeah. Let's move to the creation of Israel. The formation of Israel as a nation wasn't in Egypt. Neither was it in the promised land. They weren't formed. They were people in Egypt, but their, their creation as a nation, not in Egypt, neither in the promised land, but in Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, remember God said, that's when God pronounced, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a nation of priesthood for me. They became a nation in the wilderness when the glory of God was manifested. So once again, the creation of Israel was right in the thick of the presence and the glory of God. Just like with the, with the, with the first man, the creation of mankind, uh, of Israel, is in the realm of the presence of God. And this, this is really interesting. When you look at, before God liberated Israel from Egypt, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh time and time again 
And then to, to give a message to Pharaoh, and Moses' only message to Pharaoh is this, said, let my people go so that we can worship God in the wilderness. That was it. He didn't mention promised land. He said, let my people go so that we can worship God. Why? Because God saved you unto himself. He saved the nation of Israel to become with him. This idea of Emmanuel, God wants so much to be with Israel. Their salvation, yes, promised land, but first, I save you so you can spend time with me. Of all places, in the wilderness, so it doesn't matter where you are, if you're with God, you're with God, whether it's wilderness or promised land. This, uh, one thing also we, we, we need to learn from this is that often we use the Old Testament as, oh, it's, just, it's all about the law. There's no grace in the Old Testament. Have you noticed that actually Israel was saved first before the law came? All right? They were saved by grace because of God's kindness. And then God gave them the law. Uh, it's a different dispensation, but you know, that's a different subject, but they were saved by grace, not by law. So, now in the New Testament, we've got this, this guy by the name of Paul. He's known as the champion of new creation. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus, a new creation, is a new creation. All things have passed away, and all, all things are new. So, he wrote in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's handiwork. Okay? That's the Genesis language there, right there. We are God's craftsmanship. You can see the language of of, uh, Genesis there. In Genesis, mankind were created in the presence of God. Here, he said, we are his craftsmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Can you see the pattern here? From the first creation, we were created in the presence of God. In the new creation, you and I as new creations, we are his craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus. For good work. We talked about it last, last week. Now, I want, to, I want to explore more about this Emmanuel thing. If you read John's Gospel, I mean, we don't have to read through it, but just, I just want to uh, talk about it. John's gospels, Gospel begins with uh, what is known the prologue of the Gospel, which, is, which starts from verse 1 all the way to verse 18. And this prologue is divided into, into two, verse 1 to 13 and verse 14 to 18. Now, verse 1 to 13, the language, if you, if you read, the language is pretty much Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And he went and talked about, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He just went on and on. The whole thing all the way to, to uh, verse 13. It's just the language of Genesis. And then it says in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gives the right to become children of God who were born not of man, not of blood, but of God. He started to touch on, on a different kind of birth. He stopped right there and then he began in verse 14. He said, and the word became flesh and made, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Guess what? That language changed from Genesis to Exodus. Because in Exodus is where the glory of God was manifested. And let me say this. This is what's interesting. Where it says, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling or dwells among us. That word means, actually means, the Word became flesh and tabernacle among us. It's really interesting. And then from then on, he started to compare between Jesus and Moses. You know, you just keep on reading all the way to verse 18. So the language was really Exodus. Now here's the thing. It is as if John was communicating, communicating this. Just as Moses saw the glory of God, we too have seen the glory of God, but in the flesh. We too have seen the glory of God, just like Moses, we have seen the glory of God in the flesh. Now, let me make this statement. This truth that John has just written, it cuts across every mindset, whether it's Hebrew mindset or Greek mindset, concerning what spirituality is all about. That's why it is a stumbling block to the Jews. Because all they know about the glory of God is when it's manifested either in the Solomon Temple, this cloud of glory, or in Mount Sinai, this massive thing. And all of a sudden, there's almost like a reduction sort of thing. John said, listen, all those things, but now it's manifested in the flesh. Do you know how much that will mess up with their, with their thinking? Like, really? And to the Greek, especially the Gnostic society, who, who believes that the body is the, present, uh, is the prison of the soul, he comes, John said, no, it's not the prison of the soul. The body is the one that God wants to live in. <laughs> he wants to live in there. He cuts every mindset. It's like something that is new that's never been thought before. Jews or Gentiles. The Jews are like, oh, glory has to be whatever. He said, no, it's in the flesh. God proved it. But the Gentiles, now, 
This body is the prison of the soul. We need, to, uh, we need to attain to some level of spirituality. Some Christians sometimes think like that. Somehow they have to attain to some level of spirituality. Hey, it's right here. John brought a very, like, it's that simple. So we can conclude that Genesis and Exodus in John's prologue seems to assert the idea of Emmanuel, God's desire to be with his people. Now I want to uh, ask you to go to Luke chapter 21, verse 1. We're nearly there. This I'll make I'll make it very quickly. Luke 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, he also saw the poor, a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others, and all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of the disciples were remarking about the, how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, two big questions here. Okay. This massive temple, we see the scenario. Few days before that, Jesus, Jesus was in the same temple. He was angry because people were selling and buying in the temple. So he was cleansing the temple. He said, don't make my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Don't make it a den of robbers. So like, you know, he, was, yeah, he was really passionate about his house. So my question is this. Okay. Why, okay, why was Jesus passionate about the temple that was about to be destroyed anyway? The answer is simple, because it is the house of God. He said it, my house, because it is the house of God. Here's the second question. Why would Jesus commend the poor widow for giving, to, giving all she had to something that was about to be destroyed? It's a good question, isn't it? He commanded this woman for giving into this temple that was actually, he just prophesied, it's going to be destroyed. Why? It still was the house of God. I hope you get this. In case you don't get it, I want you to say it together with me. Because it is the house of God. Come on, let's say it is the house of God. That's how serious Jesus was. When I read that, I thought, Jesus, hang on, you're commanding this lady gave everything she had to this, this thing, whatever this thing is, that you just prophesied is going to be destroyed? Yes, because it is the house of God. 
Even though it is a house under the old system that, is, that was about to be destroyed, it is still the house of God. And Jesus is passionate about it. So, after that, now it makes sense to me as I read, because Peter was there when Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will rest on another. That will, be, that will not be torn down. Everything will be destroyed. So, after the resurrection of Jesus, and Peter experiencing the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and he was there at the time of Jesus predicting this, this destruction. And now he presented to his readers the reality of this new anticipated temple because he's living in it where all the prophets of the Old Testament prophesying over it, about it and never saw the reality. Now he's living in the reality of this new temple. The old temple that was predicted to be destroyed with its scattered stones has now been replaced by the coming together of living stones being built into a spiritual house, you and I. What was scattered stones now replaced by you and I coming together to him as living stones? And it was as if, when I think it is the ultimate fulfillment of God being with his people is him being in his temple, spiritual temple, made up of spiritual people. You know, people say, you know, but isn't the, the ultimate meeting with God, un, union with God, is us going to heaven? Have you read in uh, Revelation 21 where it says the new Jerusalem would come down from heaven? That, that blows my mind. The new Jerusalem actually will come down from heaven. No wonder Jesus said, you want to pray, pray like this. Let your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? It goes back to Genesis. When there was chaos, there was, the, you know, there was nothing, it was just chaos. God came, God spoke the word, the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep. God came, order came. In the world today, where there is chaos, I think God wants to bring order into the world, just like in the time of creation. But it's not going to happen through our system, but it's going to happen through transformed people who live by a higher rule and higher authority, God himself. Not only God hovered over, over the deep, over the earth, God actually dwells in his people. It's about the house of God. You and I are the house of God. We are the house of God. I want to say this. This is straight from my heart and Diane's heart. I ask both Diana, we ask God, 
Give us at least 30 more years for the sake of your people. Because we count it a privilege to build the people of God. We do. As a matter of fact, we went out for dinner last night. We haven't been out for dinner for a long time. We sat down. It's just natural. We sat down with a glass of champagne. I said to die. Cheers for the house of God. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? <laughs> but she, she just cried. She said, yeah, Brown, there's nothing worth living for. Hmm? Nothing else worth living for. Do you see? It's just natural for us for the sake of, of the house of God. I want to read this last scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Can I have the measles, please? Paul puts it this way. This truth is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to his people, to them, to his people, to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery. And the punchline here, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God among us. In the Old Testament, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they pride themselves because God lives among them. But as New Testament believers, guess what? We pride ourselves because God is not just among us, but God is in us because of the Holy Spirit. The Jews can, can say, yeah, God is in our midst. No, no, God, us are Christ. God is in us. Let's all stand up. This is the house of God. I've asked Kayla to sing this song. Is Kayla here? Oh, good. Because the words are beautiful in this song. When Ben wrote this song, I said to Ben, like many other songs that he wrote, this would be my favorite song. <laughs> and one of the, the sentences of this song is, that God has chosen has called my heart his home. Isn't that beautiful? God called your heart to be his home. Sing it, Kelly.
all sing together. Who am I the guys like you? Who in all the earth is like?